Good evening, everybody. Well, if you've got an outline there, decisions, as Joe said, uh, talk seven. Because the issue of guidance and decision-making uh, for Christians is an area of confusion, I think, and a confusion that uh, can sometimes uh, paralyze us. Most of that confusion comes from a particular way of thinking, a particular error of thinking, which I want to correct tonight. And uh, you've got two boxes on the uh, sheet. We're going to draw two outlines, the first, sorry, two diagrams. Um, and the first diagram we'll, we'll, we'll cover quite quickly. That's the first one. And the second one, we're going to spend a, lot, a bit more time sort of covering it. So you, you might be turning back to that box uh, as I go through. Uh, the first diagram I want to uh, show you is what I call the bullseye view of guidance. The bullseye view of guidance. So I'll give you a second to uh, just maybe jot that down if you want to. The bullseye view of guidance looks like that. Simple as that. See why it's called the bullseye view? Now we'll label those uh, circles. The outer circle uh, is God's revealed moral will. God's revealed moral will. Revealed in the Bible. Uh, that is, when it comes to decision-making, for some decisions in life, you can open the Bible and you can see broadly what you can and can't do. So in terms of a job, I, I mentioned to uh, the guys at Spur yesterday uh, that my ancestors were pirates. And uh, don't think sort of pirates on the high seas, they were river pirates in the Austrian River Ruhr, which is where we get our name from. True story. So think pirates, but sort of more gentle and cultured. That's my ancestors. They owned a castle on the River Ruhr, and uh, the way they earned their money uh, back in the day was um, if a boat went down the river, they would stop the boat and extort money out of them. Highly illegal, uh, highly immoral, but not too much bloodshed. So a nice kind of pirate. <laughs> now, should I follow my ancestors into that business, career, job, I don't know what you call it. Well, I open the Bible and the Bible says, you shall not steal. Very, very clear guidance, isn't it? That that particular job path is not open to me, which I think is a real pity because I like boats and I like rivers and I quite like the idea of being a river pirate, but never mind, I found a different uh, course of life. Um, but you see the point, the Bible gives us some very clear guidance. But what about that little circle in the middle? A lot of Christians then want to go further and say, what is God's specific revealed will for me? So what should I do when I graduate? What career job or path should I pursue? Okay, I understand that the immoral ones and the illegal ones are out, but that leaves a lot of other jobs. Um, should I train, as we were thinking of yesterday, for full-time ministry? Where should I live? Should I buy a house or rent a house? Should I get married? To whom should I get married? Which church should I get involved in? What shall I do in church? What shall I do over the summer? Shall I go to this camp or that camp? Should I have a year abroad? How should I spend my money? Those kinds of questions. And I don't know if you can associate with, with this kind of idea, but I think it's a, it's a real um, issue. It's a live issue in Christian circles. I'll give you two examples. A few years ago, someone said to me, um, I'm seeking God's guidance about which car to buy. Should I buy a Ford, this Ford, or this Mazda? 
Now you, you might think that's a, a, a bit odd, or maybe you don't think it's too odd, but it's, it's, it's very co common to think like that. Is God going to tell me which of the, these cars... What if I get another example? Someone said to me this morning, who heard this talk a few years ago, or a version of this talk when they came to university, they said, thank you for giving that talk. I remember it really well because I was in distress in my first term at university because I thought I'd made a mistake coming to Lancaster. I don't know what made them think that. Maybe they got out, looked around the campus and looked at the weather coming in from the bed. Oh, this has got to be a mistake. This can't be God's will for me to be at Lancaster University. But seriously, he told me he was in distress because he believed he had missed the bullseye. Do you see? He'd missed God's best for him. It wasn't God's will that he came to Lancaster University. Somehow he had missed God's will. Now I wonder if you can see just how uh, paralyzing this view of guidance is. Having this view of guidance is a great way to waste your life. I mean, imagine if you had to make that kind of decision, you had to go through that process every time you cross the road. And if you think about it, why not? Because crossing the road can be a life-changing decision, can't it? You get hit by a bus, you, you, your life has changed. So why not apply that guidance to everything, to every decision in life? And it reminds me a little bit, if you live like that, about the scene in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire when there's that crazy maze and they have to find the cup in the middle of the maze, that tournament. And to some people, some Christians with this view of guidance, actually life is a bit like that. That life is this kind of complicated maze that we've got to navigate, we've got to find our way into the goblet in the middle, and if we don't find that, that perfect will of God, the right university course, the right place to be, the right marriage partner, we've got the booby prize, we've missed out uh, on God's will. So that's the wrong view of guidance. I want to now correct that, and we've got, just so you can sort of follow the Slightly complicated outline tonight. We've got three principles, one direction, and I did think at one point that I'd make all my titles uh, boy bands, but I gave up on that pretty quickly. And uh, two examples. So three principles, one direction, two examples. That's where we're going. Three principles then. The first principle, and this is where we're going to build our second diagram, which will begin now, is the sovereign will of God. The sovereign will of God. So on the outer circle, encompassing everything that happens in the world, is God's sovereignty. What do we mean by God's sovereignty? Um, sometimes people have kind of debates about sovereignty as if it's this kind of complicated doctrine. All God's sovereignty means is that God is in charge of everything that happens in this world. Another way of saying that is God's sovereignty means that God is God. He really is God because he's in charge of everything. And he's in charge, let me give you three examples which you'll see on this sheet. He's in charge of the big things. So Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. So he's in charge of the big things like who is saved, who is Christian, who's going to be there on the last day. But second example, Luke 12, he's in charge of the small things. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Every bird that you've seen today, you've seen some birds, every one of them, God knows, the hairs on your head, 
every one of them in, is numbered. So he's in charge of the big things, he's in charge of the tiny things, but he's also in charge of the bad things as well. Genesis 50 verse 20, you intended to harm me, Joseph says to his brothers, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So God's sovereignty means he really is in charge of everything that happens. And what that means for guidance is that all those examples I mentioned, actually God does have a will for those things. He does have a will. The only problem is he doesn't reveal his will in those things. And I've noticed that people who live by the bullseye method seem to want to try and extract from God through all sorts of stressful methods like dreams and visions and open doors and closed doors and words and coincidences, want to extract from God the things that he has not committed to revealing, which are his secret sovereign will. Actually, it turns out that God is much kinder than that view makes out. He's actually told us everything we need to know. And that brings us to our second circle, which is the word of God. God's revealed will in the Bible. Turn over the page and have a look at uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here is a statement about the Bible. That phrase, verse 16, tells us that the Bible is the result of God's speech, God's breath. I am breathing now as I speak. If I stopped breathing, I wouldn't be able to speak. God's breath, his speech, has created the Bible. It was, of course, written down by human beings, but it's the result of God's speech. And therefore, notice that the Bible has a quality about it that is absolutely perfect. It means that it's infallible, it's true and it's faultlessly complete, contains no errors, it has final authority, and it's useful, Paul says, verse 16. It sounds like a bit of an understatement, doesn't it? But it's, it's useful, meaning it has everything that we need. It's sufficient, it contains all we need, verse 17, so we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter chapter one, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, through our knowledge of him who calls us out of, uh, who called us by his own glory and goodness. So the knowledge we get in the Bible gives us everything we need to live the Christian life. In other words, God has not promised to reveal his will apart from the Bible. It's not that he can't lead in other ways. He can do whatever he likes. He can give us an angel at the bottom of the bed tomorrow morning and tell us exactly what he wants us to do he could put writing in the sky he could have all sorts of funny coincidences but he hasn't promised to do that he hasn't led us to expect that but he has given us a clear word in the bible now at this point people object in three different ways yes but yes but yes but so the objection one yes but doesn't he also guide us internally by his spirit and you'll often hear people talk about the spirit at work in them in this area of guidance. So yes, of course, I read my Bible, but the spirit 
has told me, the Spirit has let me know, God has said to me. Okay, the problem with that is that in the Bible, the Spirit and the Word never get separated like that. So if you ever hear someone talking about what the Spirit has done for them or to them or in them, but they're not talking about the Word, they're doing something that the Bible never ever does. The Bible never separates the Word and the Spirit. So if someone says to you, you know, the Spirit said to me, or as we were singing that song, the Spirit made me feel this particular way, or the Spirit led me to this particular per person or, or course of action. No, that, that's not what the Bible does. The Bible keeps the Word and Spirit together. Second objection. Yes, but I can see that the Bible is God guidance, God's guidance, and therefore I'm going to use the Bible to tell me my particular way forward. And the famous example, the classic example, is the guy who was seeking guidance on who he should marry. He opened the Bible, Isaiah 55, 12, and read, you shall go out with joy. <laughs> Very handy. But that is not how the Bible works. The Bible is not a magic code. It was first written to its original audience of Israel and the, uh, the, the, the early church and so on. The Bible is God's story of salvation. It's not about us. It's not about who we should go out with. It's about Christ. And the task of the Holy Spirit is to shape our hearts and minds as we read the Bible, not to tell us to whom should I go out, but to conform our minds to the character of Christ. Third objection, yes, but. Okay, I get that the Bible is the key to all this, but doesn't the Bible itself give us all sorts of different ways that, the, that God leads. Don't we see, for example, in the book of Acts, God guiding his apostles in supernatural ways. There are visions. The man of Macedonia, for example, in Paul's dream, begging Paul to go over to Macedonia to help him. I read the Bible, I understand it's revealing God's will, but doesn't the Bible itself lead us to expect these kinds of ways? Well, here's an answer to that that even in the book of Acts, even in the New Testament, these are very, very rare ways that God guides, even for the apostles. So if you read the book of Acts and ask the question, how do the apostles know what to do? How do they decide what to do? Most of the time, they just make decisions. 15.28, Acts 15.28, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Or Acts 20.16, Paul decided to sail past Ephesus. Most of the time, they just make a decision and get on with it. And they don't ask for that sort of guidance. They don't seek it. When it comes, it comes out of the blue, and it's very, very rare. And most of the time, they just get on and do the thing that they think is the right thing to do. And therefore, what is the will that the Bible reveals? I've talked about the Bible revealing everything we need to know. Well, what is the will? See, part of the problem with this whole question is that we're actually often, I think, if we're honest, not really wanting to do what God wants to do, but we're wanting to do what we want to do and we want God's approval to do it. And so we tend to get hung up about the things, the job, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, which university to go to, which car to buy. We get hung up about those things that God really has very little interest in or at least any very little interest in telling us what he, he, he thinks, he really doesn't care as much about the things that we care about and get hung up about. So what does God care about? What is his will? Well, I'm going to tell you. 
There's a box there for you to write it down. You're going to go away tonight from this talk and you are going to know God's will for your life. Here it is. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. God's will is that you should be sanctified. God's will is that you should be sanctified. Sanctified just means to be holy, to be set apart, to be like God. And the will of the Bible, the will of God revealed in the Bible is that he wants all of us to be like Christ. And what this means is that it makes guidance harder and easier at the same time. It makes guidance easier and harder at the same time. So let me give you an example. It's that time of year, isn't it, when you kind of, first years you're thinking about which house you're going to live in next year and who you're going to live with and so on. And it's not wrong to pray for God's leading in that question. But how are you going to pray? So you might be tempted to pray, God, please show me which house should I live in next year? Which people should I live in with next year? So I don't get it wrong. But if God's will is that we're sanctified, a better way of praying would be like this. Lord, please help me make this decision in the light of the gospel. Help me to choose my flatmates next year with godly motives. Help me to be somebody who can be a godly flatmate to other people, whoever they are. Give me the strength to love the people I live with through the gospel. Please transform my heart and mind so I can lovingly share the gospel with the people I'm going to live with. And please help me to react in a godly way if I don't get my first choice and end up with those loonies. I mean, end up with a less than ideal situation. <laughs> See, I know this is a very raw issue for some people, isn't it? See, so many people pray for God to show them what to do, but actually the Bible teaches us how we should be and so in any of these decisions, the first thing to do is to pray for your motives, pray for your godliness, your sanctification. Pray that our minds will be conformed to God's will and then the question will start to lose its sort of sharpness and its difficulty. Well, we've talked about two circles. Let's go back to the circle and there's a third one which is in the middle. The gift of wisdom. So there are three circles. God's sovereignty, nothing happens outside God's sovereignty. That is his will, but he doesn't reveal it. Then there is the will that he has revealed in the Bible. But then within that circle, there is freedom. And the word the Bible gives for this freedom is wisdom. There's a lot we could say about this topic. It's a, it's a really big topic, but let's say a couple of things about it. Firstly, what is wisdom? Well, the Bible says that wisdom begins with the fear of God. When you acknowledge that you are not God, that God is God, that's wisdom. And because God has revealed himself in the Bible, wisdom is connected to the Bible. It is the godly application of his word with the freedom that we have, which seeks the glory of God. How does wisdom come? We'll have a look at James 1 verse 5. It comes from God. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. Isn't that, isn't that good news? That if you want wisdom, you can ask for it, God gives it to you. Now I'll give you some homework. I don't often give homework. In fact, I haven't given any homework. I've this this time. Homework. This is fun. This is something to do 
uh, on the train or, or, or when you've got a spare minute or whatever. Job 28. Read Job 28. That's the homework. Read Job 28. Don't look at it now. Maybe you're going to do it before you go to sleep tonight. But at some point, in the light of this talk, read Job 28. And Job 28 will, will show you how utterly precious wisdom is. And then compare that with James chapter 1. And God gives it to you if you ask him. Isn't that amazing? Not overnight, but in the course of a lifetime. Not as an intravenous drip, but God will give you wisdom over time with age. And one of the way we get wisdom, which it comes out in those three Proverbs I've put there, is through other people. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 13, 10, pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 19, 20, listen to advice and accept instruction. And in the end, you will be wise. It's something that we don't, we don't do enough of. And the church is, is God's resource for kind of, you know, asking other people, perhaps older people, perhaps people who have done it before and been in a different stage of life, ask them. And then what does wisdom look like? James three seventeen. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. In other words, as you live the Christian life and you sit under God's word and you meditate on God's word and you ask him for wisdom and you talk to other people, your priorities change. Your priorities change to become more like God. And you start to make decisions that look more wise because they're pleasing to God. But this is the freedom that God gives us. Over the page, second principle then. Three principles. Sorry, second heading, one direction. If you could turn now to Luke chapter 12, that would be great. Luke chapter 12. Page 1044, if you have a red Bible, is that? Luke 12, 27. This is Jesus speaking. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, of you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. This is a wonderful passage about the fact that we have a father in heaven who really does care about our welfare. He knows what we need before we ask him. And in his amazing sovereignty, he provides it. And therefore, can you see that this gives us great liberty not to worry about those things, not to be anxious for those things, not to go after them. Instead, look at verse 31. What is the one thing that we are to pursue? The one direction that our lives are to head in it is seeking God's kingdom. In other words, what sort of job you do, or whether you marry Jemima or George, doesn't really matter that much to God, not enough for him to reveal those things before the event. What university you go to doesn't really matter to God. What matters is that you seek the kingdom. What house you live in doesn't really matter to God. 
But how you live in that house, how you use that house matters to God. And so the big decisions that we get stressed about won't put you outside God's will unless you do something immoral. And yet those are the things we spend time worrying about. Jesus says this to help us to be liberating. The one priority is to seek the kingdom and all those other things, home, food, job, everything you think about, everything you need to live will be provided. Okay, let's conclude then with two examples. So let's go back to our circles and we'll think this through firstly in marriage, secondly in work, just by way of example. So marriage first of all. For those of you who are romantic, who grew up with Disney and Hollywood and Jane Austen and Shakespeare. See, I'm getting higher up the culture scale. Just <laughs> some people are being lost as I go up that scale, but well, well done for those of you who stayed with me. Um, I'm going to break it to you gently. The world, the, God is not promising Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Mr. or Miss Wright, isn't it? God is not promising that if you find that beautiful princess or handsome prince, you will find happiness and the one. Because the Disney myth, the, the Hollywood myth, is that Mr. Wright or Miss Wright is out there somewhere, the perfect fit, and what I've got to do is somehow hone in, and if I don't, I'll be getting second best. And so how do we find a spouse? Well, think about those three circles, God's sovereign will. It's likely that your situation will be the first kind of way God guides you to your spouse. That is, what language do you speak? It's probable that you will want to marry someone who speaks the, the same language as you. It's not, not necessarily the case, but it's likely that that's going to be the case. That's normally the case. But you can, you can marry someone who doesn't speak the same language. You can learn their language. That's okay. But your culture, your setting, your situation, your upbringing, those things will, will generally kind of guide you. And then your personality, your age, it's, it's likely you're going to marry someone roughly the same age. You know, you, you might marry someone... 10 years older, that's, that's okay, that's, that's doable, maybe a little bit older. You're probably not going to marry someone 50 years older. That would be a bit weird, but it's been done. But God's sovereignty is just who you are, the situation you're in, and your temperament, your personality. You're probably going to marry someone who's, who's, who's loosely, loosely kind of a bit like you and likes the same things. And then God's revealed will. This is the really easy one because God's word is very, very clear about this. What kind of person can you marry if you're a Christian? Someone who is also a believer. Someone who is of the opposite sex. Someone who is not already married. And someone who is not closely related. And those four things are it. Opposite sex, not already married, not closely related, and is a believer. And once you've ticked those four boxes, you're free. You can go online and you can go on a, a Christian dating agency and you can, like my friend who wrote to us a few years ago and he said, after the cricket season has finished, I'm going to get married. And we, we thought, well, you don't have a girlfriend. You don't, you don't have a fiancé. How are you going to get? We said, I'm going to find a wife. Dating website. Next time we married him, 
Uh, I mean, next time, we, <laughs> sorry, next time we met him, he said, this is my new wife that I got off the dating thing. I waited till the cricket season was finished and then I got on with it. You can do it before the cricket season's finished. So God's revealed will is very simple. And therefore, if you're not a believer, then please don't marry a believer, marry an, an unbeliever. Thirdly, wisdom. This person is going to partner with you in the work of God. So you can do the dating thing. You can tick the four boxes and think, right, well, she'll do. But you can do more than that. You can use wisdom to think what will actually make this a good and fruitful marriage. Because remember, God's will is that you're sanctified. So is this person going to be somebody who helps you to be sanctified? Ephesians 5 says the godly husband is loving and sacrificial. And so as you're looking for your potential marriage partner, uh, you're looking for that man who demonstrates that he is loving and sacrificial. How does he treat his mum is a great question to ask. Is he, is he kind to his mum? He, is he one of these people who ri he rings his mum every, every week because he said he's going to? How does he treat the old people in church? Does he t is he capable of talking to them? Is he the kind of person who can get down to the, you know, the two-year-olds in the creche and relate to them? Is he the kind of person who can sort of set up the chairs and get up early and do, be on the setup team and that kind of thing? Is he someone who is loving the Bible, is growing and learning? He's not embarrassed to talk about spiritual things. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, oh, yeah, this is, this is describing me. Well, good on you. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. When you get home, there's all these, all these mothers are going to get phone calls from their sons that they haven't heard, haven't heard from for years. And what sort of woman should you look for if you're, looking for, if you're a man? Well, 1 Peter 3 says the godly wife is gentle and submissive. She has an inner beauty. That's very significant, isn't it? Because the, the, the outer beauty is very, very, um, very kind of prominent, isn't it? You see that straight away. But the inner beauty... Peter says, comes from her relationship with God and therefore increases with age. And she'll help you in that ministry. She'll be willing to serve alongside you. She's the kind of person who can make your home a place of hospitality. She'll be the kind of person who can actually push you on in your, your ministry to serve God. So this wisdom starts to ask those kind of questions. And who is it, if you put those three circles together, who is the person that is God's will that you are going to marry? It is the person that you wake up next to the day after your wedding. That's the only time you know for certain that is God's will. And what about work? Let's use a second example. Outer circle. God's sovereign will, first of all. Just a little bit of historical awareness helps us to appreciate the sovereignty of God here and helps us to be uh, realistic about work. See, it's important to remember that for most of history, most people have had very, very little choice about what they do. If your father was a baker, you'd be a baker. If your father was a candlestick maker, you'd be a candlestick maker and so on. That was the way the world worked. And if your father was a slave, you would be a slave. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are, that's the way the world worked. We live in different times. We live in this really unique and unusual situation where we have prospects of going to university, of getting degrees, of getting MAs, of being qualified, of having all this choice. 
and we get on this job ladder and we tell ourselves it's because we are somehow intelligent and clever compared to the rest of the world. It's not because of our intelligence and cleverness, it's because of God's sovereignty. It's because he has placed us in this particular situation. It's because you went to that particular school, whereas if you were born in another part of the world, you wouldn't have been in that school. You would have been down the mine or in the factory making cheap clothes for Primark. None of us are self-made. We're part of a web of circumstances and privileges. And so God's sovereignty gives us some humble kind of views of, of work. We're, we're not here because of our cleverness, really. Uh, we're here because God has put us here. And therefore, it reminds us again, as we saw, uh, I think last week, didn't we, this rather strange and modern phenomenon called the career, and this even stranger phenomenon called job satisfaction. The Bible doesn't talk about those things. The Bible talks about working, because that's part of the package of human life and being generous and earning money so that you can support other people. And if you enjoy your job, great, that's a bonus. But that is not the thing to seek. So God's sovereign will, first of all. But then, what does the Bible say about God's sovereign, revealed will? How does the Bible itself help us to choose a job? Well, as I said before, there are certain jobs that are ruled out, aren't there? You can't be a pirate, you can't be a robber, you can't be a prostitute. There are some jobs in medicine now that will force you to provide abortions. There are some jobs that will force you to register same-sex marriages. There are more and more jobs, in fact, in our society than are going to be impossible for Christians to legally do. And being willfully unemployed is not an option willfully unemployed, I'm just talking here about paid work, because we want to be generous to others, 2 Thessalonians 3. And we're meant to work hard to provide for people, 1 uh, Timothy 5. And so you're free within those boundaries. If you want to be a lollipop lady or a pop singer, you can be, so long as you've got the gifts. But then thirdly, God's gift of wisdom. So God's gift of wisdom applied to this era means thinking about your own character and skills. Do you absolutely hate children? Well, hopefully you don't. But if you do, don't become a primary school teacher. Do you hate being on your own? Don't be an Eddie Stobbert truck driver. More importantly, the decision is about using wisdom in which enables you to seek the kingdom first. And that will normally put you on a head-on collision with the world and its values. Because the world, remember, values status and material gain. It actually values status even more than material gain, I think, when it comes to work. And while for the Christian there is nothing wrong with earning a lot of money, our motives in work will be different. We'll be thinking about whether there is a, a, a ministry I can do alongside this work. We'll be thinking about how this work helps me or detracts from the gospel ministry that is as Carl was saying this morning, uh, our main job will be thinking about how this job is going to relate to the church that I'm involved in. Or if I have to move jobs, which church will I be involved in? What will that do to my ministry? What's the wisdom that will enable me to put the kingdom first? That is the principle. Okay, three principles, one direction, two examples. The big principle is to get on with life now. 
So many people procrastinate because you want to know what God wants for you. Well, we've learned tonight that God wants us to be sanctified and he wants us to pursue the kingdom. Time is short. Don't waste your life. Just get on with serving Jesus because Jesus is Lord.